Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Day. And I'm Kim Cox. And this is the Book Lovers Movie Club, our final episode of November. So today we're going to be talking about the 2020 film, The Personal History of David Copperfield, and the 2021 book, The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. Um, And and thank you. There's really good job, Sarah. Um, <laughs> listeners, I just totally threw her under the bus and said, we're introducing, go. Yes, it's your turn. Um, but it's only fair because well just as you picked both the last movie and the last book of October, um, I picked both of these. And um, as we were just lamenting, these are texts that are full of names. So, so many names. Many Lots of names. names. And so I, it's my own damn fault that I'm going to have to try to <laughs> remember all of them for both texts. Sarah is, <laughs> Sarah is stealing, is steering the ship today. So, well, I, so before we get into our two super character heavy texts, um, have you been reading or watching anything a little less taxing in the name memory department? Okay. So, um, yes. And also no. So, um, <laughs> let's see after I watched, after I binged very, very quickly Haunting of Hill House, which was great. Um, then I watched, um, see, I can't even remember the name of anything at the moment. I'm sorry. Uh, I am um, underrested and I have a cold today. So those are going to be my excuses today for my brain <laughs> being a little bit slow. Um, you know, the other series that you told me i should probably watch which is called midnight mass there it goes oh yeah yeah i watched midnight mass and also binged that i have a problem with binging shows i like when i do it i i go real hard yeah you don't um, have a, a moderation button. no no uh-uh yeah. no i and like if i'm falling asleep because it's two in the morning i'll stop um, but otherwise I'm probably going to watch another one. So yeah. I'll binge a whole show. And it was a, it's a mini series. So like Haunted right. Hill House. So it was only like seven episodes, but yeah, I did watch it in a day and a half. So I watched- that one I actually <laughs> watched <laughs> over the course of its release. And so oh, I'm trying yeah. to imagine how the impact was. So I am going to spoil all sorts of things for this show, but mostly like this one thing. Um, so if you haven't watched it and you want to watch it, skip ahead 60 seconds or so, <laughs> um, starting now. Okay, so I liked Midnight Mass a lot, but I didn't find it scary at all. Um, and Haunting of Hill House, I found genuinely scary. And it made me, like, squeal out loud with fear multiple <laughs> times. I also cried a bunch of times. Oh my gosh, cried so many times in that show. And Midnight Mass didn't do either of those things to me. I got a little verklempt there at the end. There was some moving moments there towards the end. But um, one thing that I wonder what your response was, if you're at all familiar with like vampire lore and stories and things, there's the thing that happens like right at the beginning, like in the first episode, you see somebody bring a box into a room and I'm like, oh, vampires. (laughs) immediately because i was I... like that box was on a ship and so there's a vampire in so there's there. there's a vampire in there yeah and so that's i knew that right away for, for midnight mass you know it's somehow i got spoiled on midnight mass before i watched it um i don't remember how and i i so i do remember seeing that and being like oh yes obviously vampire mm-hmm. uh, but i'm not sure if i would have necessarily mm-hmm. if i hadn't been spoiled um, yeah 
I don't think that that being a huge twist is necessary for the enjoyment of that show. No, I don't think so. You so, know that there's a vampire, but by the second episode, at least, you know, something there's something early, like a vampire. At you're least. like, okay, if it's not a vampire, it's close. And because it's so interested in Catholicism, mm-hmm. um, I think that if you're fixating on the religious aspects, you may not be paying as much attention to yeah. the clues there that there's that the vampire situation yeah um, i still think it's very well done and really interesting same. in the way that they and again I, in the I way think that they spin the vampire thing the lore, i think and, it's and a really interesting take on it as a raised catholic i think it does a lot of really cool and interesting things with questions about the faith mm-hmm. um and i love the sheriff i love that actor yeah uh, but i also love the way that that storyline is handled right yeah. with the the challenges of being in this this very specific kind of community where you don't you don't fit in but also navigating being a parent to a child who does want to fit in and is going to potentially challenge your ideas about faith so definitely again not as strong as hill house i still think hill house is the winner of the flanagan olympics yeah hill house is masterful I think mm-hmm. really, really good. And then I watched Dr. Sleep because it was, it's also, Ooh, same guy. yeah, that's right. And um, I did a little Googling, like, which are, cause he's got quite a lot now, mm-hmm. um, series and, and movies and things. And so I did a little Googling about like the highest rated, what do critics think are his best? Um, and Dr. Sleep was number three, but also I had wanted to watch Dr. Sleep cause I, it's a Stephen King novel and I, it's a sequel to, um, the Shining, the and Shining. I love The Shining. It's one of my favorite books of all time. Um, scared the shit out of me when I read it when I was like 12. Um, I was reading this when I was visiting my dad who lived in Virginia when I lived in North Carolina and had gone to visit and I was reading this book and everybody was going out somewhere for something. And I was I was probably like 13 and I was like, I am not interested in that. I am reading this book. And I was outside in my little brother's, um, I might have been even a little older than that, but there was a treehouse that had been built on this property. And I was up in this treehouse reading this book, reading The Shining, and my family left and I'm still out there reading The Shining. And at a certain point, I realize it's getting dark and there's no family home yet. And so that's okay. That's fine. But then I had to go into the house and if it's getting dark outside, the house is dark. Right, because they haven't been anywhere home to turn on lights. No lights are on, so that was so scary. I will always remember that. But anyway, Doctor Sleep <laughs> is the sequel to that, and you know you gotta love you and McGregor. Um, you do, I think. Yes. And I thought Doctor Sleep was very good, but also not scary. But I didn't think the book was scary either. I thought the book was good, but not scary. But so I have not read The Shining, much less uh, Doctor Sleep, and it's not The Shining's fault. It's because I hated the Kubrick movie so much. Yeah, and I know they're not fair. the same. I know they're not. I'm, I'm very intellectually aware of that. Um, but I'm sort of like, that's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, you're not required. <laughs> to be to fair, I've Stephen only King. read one Stephen King novel ever. And Which one? You've told me um, this before. Carrie. That's the only oh. one I've ever read. I came across it in like a used book sale in high school. I was going to say, did I you have did to read that in some like feminist? Very, very scary. <laughs> I found the movie even a little scary. Um, yeah. But yeah, so it's, it's, he's, I think he's a very talented writer and I've liked a lot of the things adapted from his work. I don't have any reason not to have read Stephen King. I just haven't ever. So maybe yeah. that'll be a, a project for me. For um, okay. So lastly, in terms of like anything that's challenging in terms of names and remembering things, I stumbled upon a podcast called the Magnus Archives, which 
I had never heard of before, but I think it's got it's probably got this huge like cult following at this point because it's got like five seasons and the last season ended a couple years ago, I think. And it's all about like this institute in London that um, takes the statements of people who have experienced something strange, something paranormal or otherwise weird and unexplainable, and they take their statements. And so people um, write their statements down and then the archivist the archivist if you're british um will record them read those statements this is how they get you know this is how the podcast works is that somebody reads the statements into a recorder anyway and it is all these different stories that have nothing to do with one another until at a certain point you start to see the threads that are maybe connecting them but that's only by the time you're at like episode 20 do you start to see there are some connections and maybe some things that are similar and i'm on like episode 135 now or something i know i'm the episodes uh they're only like 20 minutes 25 minutes um but nonetheless like I was cleaning the garage this last weekend and all sorts. Of, and I just listened for like 12 hours um, straight kind of thing. Binge hard. But anyway, um, so there were so many characters and stories and people. And you're supposed to remember who everybody is and understand all of these connections and be trying to figure it all out. And it's very complicated. I'm just like, I don't remember. They'll explain it or they won't. So. Right. I have given you this much of my brain. Yeah, yeah. anymore. But enough. it's fun. It's definitely fun. I've never heard of it, but it no, does I seem have, like the kind of thing that I the internet. I don't know where I came across it. Erased. I think I wanted something scary. Yeah. And so I think I typed up like scary podcasts or something. And some of the stories are scary. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for some it now. It's won everything. And... It's won like all the awards. Yeah. It's really, really well done. But yeah, I guess it did. It wrapped up a couple of years ago. And it's like an it's like an audio play kind of thing, right? They've That's got cool. sound effects and people are doing are acting, and it's not like a, you know, it's not like this podcast where people are just talking, <laughs> where no one's acting, right? Um, and the person who who wrote, like the person who plays the archa of the the archivist, um, he like wrote all these stories. And that is alone really impressive. Yeah, and there are lots of like spooky story podcasts that I just cannot handle because the writing is not good. And the writing on this is so good. Like the stories are inventive and the writing itself is fantastic. And it's just really impressive. Be that prolific too. I know. It's really, it's It's really impressive. And he knows what the whole arc of the whole season. Right. Like they can envision the 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 big picture and have these little mini things. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, Well, I uh, took myself to see a movie for the first time in months. And so I thought I'd report on that because movie theaters, I love movie theaters. So I took myself to see Priscilla, the new Sofia Coppola movie. Yeah. And um, I'm not an Elvis fan. Like I think Elvis's music is sort of objectively interesting and good and whatever, but like, didn't ever care about him as a public figure, have no Same. real interest in Priscilla Presley. Um, it's actually, I mean, if you are into Sofia Coppola, you know exactly what kind of movie you're going to get mm-hmm. and you will enjoy it. Um, if you're not, I think it must be a very frustrating experience. <laughs> yeah. It's a very, like sort of slow. There's not a ton of dialogue. A lot of things are just, it's very episodic. It's the one thing that surprised me is that it is pretty standard biopic. And I, I was expecting her to like twist it a little bit more than she did. Huh. But um, on the other hand, it's extremely in keeping with 
her aesthetic. It's beautiful. The costumes are incredible. The acting is super great. Um, the guy they have playing Elvis is this Australian actor, Jacob Alordi, and he's six foot five. Oh. And so he just towers over everything. And it's super effective way to kind of capture like Elvis as presence without being super uh-huh. like, you know, yeah. Elvisy. Uh, yeah. Because his music almost there's almost none of his music in the movie at all. That's interesting. And he does a great Elvis um speech pattern and voice. Huh. So um, but yeah, I really, really liked it. But so it was me and like six retired people at a matinee. <laughs> That's um so and then I was leaving and I had I just ran to the bathroom because the movie had been long and I had had a root beer. And this woman ran into the bathroom right after me. And got to the stall right next to me. And I'm like, listen, there are 20 empty stalls in this room. I do not understand what's happening. And she proceeds to start chatting with me, which I know some type will, like there are, 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 there's a kind of person in the world who does this, right? Yeah. But because I am not the kind of person in the world who has conversations in bathrooms, when she said, what are you watching? I, and I knew there was no one else in the bathroom, right? Like I knew it, but I was just like, respond. Like, I was just like, it's honestly probably 20 seconds of silence. And then I was like, who, me? (laughs) And so I tell her what I just saw. And she's like, well, I'm seeing the exorcist and it's so scary. I had to go to the bathroom. And I was like, we are not friends. What is happening right now? And so she proceeds to keep chatting. This is what happens when you go to a bar. Right. It was so strange. The bathroom in a bar. And so she's like, and she's like, I live alone and now I'm really scared. And I looking for a friend I'm like right now. Washing there. my hands really fast to like get out of the bathroom. Good luck. Bye. And she hears me washing my hands and she goes, Don't leave me. And I said, Good luck with the movie. <laughs> and I just left. <laughs> I had no idea what to do. It was such an awkward interaction on every and I we never saw each other. Like I was already in the stall when she came in, but she was what acting she like she needed really me. There? Yeah, it was so, and I was like, listen, if you came here with someone, take this conversation back to them. <laughs> like, I am not. Sarah, what if she didn't exist? Oh, don't have that moment with me. Or what if she's thinking maybe you don't maybe exist? Maybe I don't exist. But I <laughs> was, I think mostly, I was just like, this is the part of the movie theater experience I would skip if I could. Like, yeah. Yeah. Other, other people. people. <laughs> yes. But I had a great time and I was happy. to, And I saw great previews. So that was exciting too. Um, love that but now i'm super excited to see this new weird nicholas cage movie the dream scenario movie i don't Have you know heard this. about it at all no he plays this college professor who starts appearing randomly in people's dreams oh yes, yes. i did see that preview. yes i'm super excited to see that it looks so um, interesting what's it called yes. i don't know dream scenario oh <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that would be my next movie i take myself to the other one that i'm dying to see is saltburn me too um, so I'm just like waiting till it comes here so that I can watch that one because that it looks probably awesome. won't come here to where I, I think am. I have a shot. Like I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. It's not here yet. But everything but we'll starts see. streaming pretty soon. Uh, pretty quickly now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that one. But I am just yeah, I'm excited about the, the potential of those movies. There's um, something coming out next at like the end of this month, but then also streaming on like December 22nd or something. And I can't even remember what it is now, but like it announced in like both of them like in simultaneously. The ads, like see it in theaters on this I'm day kind of in favor of it, to be honest day. like i like being able to make that call yeah um because it used to be you never knew when how long do were i have to wait how long you'd have to wait yeah. and so we would make an effort to go see stuff if we were pretty sure we'd want to see it am i paying so that for we a babysitter to, to go see this or no right exactly like how 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 much effort and time and money is this one going to be worth to me right um 
but also post pandemic, like it's just still part of the like, oh, right, there are movies, right? Like we have these moments where uh-huh. we're like, oh, we could actually go see a movie. We just haven't thought about it in a while where that used to be default. Yeah. And sort of date night setting. Speaking of post pandemic, just yesterday, like three different people that I interacted with in work scenarios were either had COVID or Yikes. were like someone close to them had COVID, like in three different states. So it's definitely having a moment. It's a, yeah, it's a resurgence for sure. That's again why I'm like, hey, yay, movie theater in the middle of the day with no one else in it. It's a pretty great mm-hmm. option. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is weird. Definitely. I, I have these cognitive dissonance moments where I'm like, it's so nice to have normal life. Uh, and then I'm like, but maybe I should wear a mask. <laughs> These are just, yeah. It's so much, it's so much time that, that we're dealing with. And since we're going to be talking about the pandemic with mm-hmm. the book today. Um, but I also just finished reading, listening to this great book by Peggy Orenstein called um, Unraveling. And it's a personal it's a, it's a memoir of a very specific of the year 2020 basically in her life mm-hmm. and she's she's writing about how sort of in the aftermath of her mother's death and during the pandemic and while the california wildfires were going um she decided she wanted to knit herself a sweater that she had made from the beginning so she decides to learn how to shear sheep she decides oh, wow. to learn how to spin yarn and then she designs and, and knits the sweater but it's also like this rumination on all these other things, right? Like yeah. her mother's death, her father's um, dementia, her daughter growing up and getting ready to go to college, but also on the bigger scale, things like fast fashion, mm-hmm. the way that knitting and and um, fiber arts have been a huge part of women's lives and what productive role they've played in society. And it's just really beautifully written. She's And I listened to her read it. And so her personality is, I think, shining through even more. But it was so great. I really tell me what it's called it. again. Unraveling. Great. And it's got a long subtitle that I've forgotten the name of, um, but <laughs> ends with the world's ugliest sweater. Unraveling. Yeah. Unraveling stuff. But it's really, really great. Um, listen, and it's super interesting because she's she talks at the end a little bit about how how do we come out of the pandemic and what does it mean for our social lives and how we navigate mm-hmm. the world and um so i was thinking about that a lot since i just listened to that just mm-hmm. finished listening to that after having reread the sentence and those things yeah. are on my mind and actually i can even connect the pandemic to david copperfield okay. because um the last movie i saw in theaters before the world shut down in 2020 was emma the new emma mm-hmm. and they showed the preview for this movie and i oh. remember turning to my mother and saying i hate david copperfield and now I really want to see this movie. <laughs> so it came eventually to Amazon, but it's a little British independent film. Mm-hmm. It was going to have to rely on some sort of American distributor anyway, if it was ever going to have any audience here. And then the pandemic happened, which meant it didn't. And right. you could I don't even think you can get this movie on DVD here. Um, mm-hmm. It streams, obviously, but I tried to to order it at my last institution for my film class. And the librarian wrote me back and she's like, we can't. They're not, they don't produce this. Oh, wow. Or the U.S. for the Region One DVD player, so, wow. um, which makes it me sad. Still wild I, to me that that's a thing. Can we I not know. make that universal? It's twenty twenty three. Let's just yes. Um, but 
this movie I just think is such a delight and so now it, I'm sort of evangelical about it so I had when you suggested this I was like whatever you want sounds good to me because I, I made like, you I, watch men you yes I have definitely <laughs> not read David Copperfield I don't have any plans to read David Copperfield but if you're telling me that it's good well sure let's try it whatever you say um I was not expecting to laugh out loud as hard as I did, especially in the first like half an hour. Oh my god! Yeah, of the movie. So, Sarah, why don't you uh, why don't you introduce us? So, I'll give you yeah, let me give you a little bit of information about this. So, obviously, Personal History of David Copperfield is an adaptation of Charles Dickens' novel David Copperfield, um, which I hate and deeply, deeply resent having had read in in grad school. Um, It's his most autobiographical novel. And I'll have to say, like, I'm not a huge Dickens fan to begin with. Mm -mm. It's just wordy as shit and his his sentimental nonsense. Um, But it is a story that's based in his own life in certain ways. Um, But it is a story that features quite a few sort of ridiculous characters Mm -hmm. and so if you read it as it is a buildings roman right it begins with his birth and it goes through his life um and he he faces several hardships and it's sad in many ways and the book is sadder than the movie they made a few changes in the movie that toned down some of that um which i'm sure i'll mention but um but what this adaptation focuses on is the the joy of just having ridiculous characters being brought to life in a really believable way in this like very sentimental, but lovely way. So um, it's directed and co-written by um, director Armando. Yes. I'm going to get his last name wrong. Iannucci, I believe is how you say it. And okay. he co-wrote the screenplay with Simon Blackwell. And this guy has done a lot of, of political comedy. So probably best known for the movie, the death of Stalin a few years back. Mm-hmm. He directed some episodes of Veep. And, and wrote some episodes of VP actually won an Emmy for comedy writing for one episode. Um, and so that's the, the sort of vibe is humor. Like he's yeah. very capable comedic writer, but a, a not insubstantial amount of the dialogue in this film is lifted straight from the book. That's so great. the opening moment where um, David Copperfield. And, and so the framing device here is that David Copperfield is reading his book as a okay. published author, as an adult, um, and he begins on the stage. We have an audience mm-hmm. and almost immediately the stage sort of dissolves in this cool effect where he's no longer on the stage. Instead, he's walking through the field to his the house where he was born, the rookery. And we see the audience has been like transported into the story of his life. Yeah. And it begins with his birth and, and follows him um, until the age at which he's written this book and become a, a famous writer. And um and it's just a it's it's a fast paced funny sort yeah. of series it of events. It feels very much like um like I kept thinking this could this could be a play. This would yes, play you this could would, see how it would play on stage. This would be beautiful on stage. And yeah. the lay, there are parts later on um that are would still work, but not yes. as like blatantly clearly this would be well, it's so clearly great inflected by stage plays and victorian theatricality it's like like a farce like yes the first half hour feels like a stage oh my god and a a lot of this is down to just how quick the the dialogue is oh my god there's this one line (laughs) one one line where tilda swinton's character comes in and i don't even remember what she says that was insulting and um 
Oh gosh, help me with the names. So you um, need all the okay. So so here, let me set the scene. So the yeah, yeah. the opening scene is the da- the birth of David Copperfield, and his very young sweet mother, who's struggling through birth, obviously, and her handmaid Peggy, who is Peggy. A co- who's a constant figure in his life, and then her late husband's sister, mm-hmm. Betsy Trotwood, appears. This is Tilda Swinton, amazing Tilda Swinton performance. Yes, just she's amazing in this movie. Um. And she shows up and is like, oh, good. The girl, the baby girl is coming and you'll name her Betsy Trotwood. And yeah. um, I will be her godmother. Is that the line about the weird name Peggy going and have a person <laughs> yes. took herself to church and had herself christened Peggy? <laughs> but, okay, so this is what it is. Peggy so says. She's Trotwood. Peggy <laughs> and Trotwood. Great names, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Trotwood. Uh, Tilda Swinton's character says something to Peggy about her name and Peggy says something very sharp back about like and what was your name again Trotwood pot, oh I'm sorry I thought it was what was the pot calling the kettle black or something like that it's very black. quick oh it's so quick and it's so funny and Peggy is funny throughout yeah but she's also this motherly figure um and Trotwood is just so insistent that she's gonna have a niece and then the doctor comes out and announces oh it's a boy and she said, why are we celebrating? It's it's the first of twins and his sister is on her way. <laughs> she no. finds out there's no girl. She just leaves. She's she like ridiculous. That's leaves. It, it just disappears from the story for several for several minutes. Um, Years, right? Yes. It's never sees her. But because this again. is a fast paced movie, it only takes about 15 minutes to cover mm-hmm. the next 20 years of his life or so so poor david copperfield his father had died three months before he was born his mother is ill-equipped sweet but sort of not uh sturdy disposition and she remarries when davy is not super old a man whose name is mr murdstone and he Mm -hmm. is he brings along his um incredibly frightening like um spinster sister yeah, the actress played by who plays, Christie. yeah, who plays Brienne of Tarth, if you know her from yes, nothing else. And so she's you know she's so imposing. imposing. Yes. And she doesn't require much of anything to be imposing. She just nope. shows up. Um, and he is a very firm disciplinarian, and she's very judgmental about the new wife and the son. And so um, this is one of the few changes that they, they make to the plot. They kind of skip over Davy's first boarding school and instead Bert Stunston some straight to to the factory to bottle wine or whiskey or something it's a, a factory that merge stone's part owner of mm-hmm. um so he has a, a sort of movement from this this warm lovely home with his mother and Peggy to this disruptive life in london he's staying with this poor this this family the macabers um and that's a joke right macabre as a joke on um, the macabre and yep. he's um He's uh, an overspender, shall we say, a man of fluctuating means, David describes him later as, and he's constantly hiding from the many, many people he owes debts to. And he has agreed to take Davy in, and they actually form a sort of lovely family connection. Davy picks up really quickly on Macabre's tricks and the the way that Macabre plays with language. Mm -hmm. And this is when we start to see little David Copperfield developing the talents that will that will lead to him becoming a famous author he's a mimic he Mm -hmm. picks up people's accents he's aware of dialect um and he finds the same joy in language that macabre does this is the character that will say things like um you know making sure that we are quadrilaterally (laughs) something like quadrilaterally arranged in other words square right like and he quotes shakespeare (laughs) at random um and he's got this 
this wife who just adores him and they've got this never ending supply of children. Like every time you see babies. them. They're always babies. They're always like three baby. years old. And <laughs> yes. Um, and they end up, them. they end up in debtor's prison, but we do see them again. Um, and when that happens, um, it, oh, and in the, in the meantime, Davy's mom dies. Um, and we get this really funny, uh, inappropriately funny scene where Murdstone and his sister come to tell him your mother's died, but the news is delivered in this, this is a very sort of like trademark scene for the movie. This is the kind of humor we get throughout, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that Davy's boss calls him into the office and says, you know, we have some bad news. Your mother's not doing well. She's ill. And he says, how ill? Very <laughs> she ill. died. Fact, she's When's dead. the funeral? Saturday. Okay, so should I come with you? No, no, last Saturday, right? Like, yeah. so David's getting this terrible, terrible news. Um, and he, at this point, has aged into the main actor of the role, Dave Dev Patel. And who, let me um, let me pause for a moment yeah. and say, the kid who plays young David Copperfield is so great, great. and so yes. charming that for a moment, when Dev Patel appears on screen, I was like, "Ah, boo!" Oh no, but and then, then, you love Dave Patel. Dev Patel is so great, exactly. And the kid is, he hits exactly the same notes. Mm-hmm. It's perfect casting for adult child pair and at the very end when we get to see the two of them on screen together it's one of those moments that you're like this shouldn't work but it's working because both of these actors you're just so happy yeah to see them um but so now yeah so now we're dev patel aged up to about 16 and he's at the at this point murdstone's like okay bye um and he ends up having to to track down his aunt betsy trotwood and and sort of throw himself at her mercy and she has to some degree, she has overcome the disappointment not having a niece. Yeah. Um, but when we get to her house, this is where the sort of found family aspect of the movie is sort yeah. of most pronounced. And I've totally skipped over a whole set of things with Peggy going to Yarmouth and meeting her found family there. But it's a constant theme in the in the movie. Um, and he spends more time with Trotwood. Mm-hmm. Um, Trotwood has uh, taken in a relative, Mr. Dick, played by Hugh Laurie, um, who is mentally unwell, but also very sweet and well-meaning. And he's he's sort of mm-hmm. obsessed with Charles the first, first, the execution of Charles the first. And what's so lovely is that in these scenes, David Copperfield immediately recognizes the sort of sweetness mm-hmm. in these, these ex- sort of eccentric people. Um, he finds ways to relate to Mr. Dick and help him navigate the struggles of his his obsession with Charles I. Um, when Mr. Wickfield arrives with his daughter, she likewise has that immediate natural, I understand what's going on here. I know how to talk to you without being yeah. patronizing, without being dismissive. Um, and, and so there's this lovely dynamic where this group of students sort of outcast sort of strange people are able to create just a really lovely family and home situation um and it all rests on these performances being so believable hugh laurie mm-hmm. in this movie is so moving um he is. he's and he, you know he plays some scenes for humor and he is funny obviously yeah. but a lot of it's just sweetness. Yeah. And I think it's really great that like 
the farce aspect of the movie kind of fades into realism yes as the movie moves on so like the first time you meet almost every character you kind of see this broad presentation of them right they're kind of most farcical the most exaggerated version of themselves right yes and then very deftly shifts into something that's more realistic and while still maintaining those aspects that made them so farcical and funny like when you first see mrs trotwood her face is tilda swinton's face is pressed up against the glass her nose sideways (laughs) and it's very ridiculous and she is still that person later yes running donkeys off her land right but it's toned down just enough yes that it doesn't feel unrealistic the whole time it's really really well done it is, and it's handled in this way where you are welcoming this this sort of growth in the characters, mm-hmm. but you're also, and there's, and of course the movie does retain the humor mm-hmm. and there are several very, very funny moments at the end, but it's not as broad as the right. beginning of the movie for sure. Um, so David goes off to a second boarding school, the first one in the movie. Um, it's falling down. It's literally a disaster. Um, and there he meets his friend Steerforth. And this is where one of the major sort of points of the movie really crystallizes, which is that David Copperfield throughout the film has his sort of had a series of identities. And this mm-hmm. is this is represented by the fact that people call him different names. Right. And um, like Trotwood insists on calling him Trotwood. Um, if I'm going to support my nephew. I would like to like his I would I want to <laughs> like his name. So, um, okay. you know, when he gets to the boarding school, Steerforth calls him Daisy. Mm-hmm. Later, he meets and falls in love with Dora, and she calls him Dodie. And it's this kind of constant shifting, who am I question. Yeah. Um, and this is heightened by the fact that he is such a good mimic, and he is so attuned to the characters around him. But he obviously, he wants to impress Steerforth. Mm-hmm. He he tells Steerforth stories about his life, but pretends that they're fiction. Yeah, Like he sort of hides himself in this new friendship. Um, and he is better off now. He has financial support. He's got a healthy allowance. Um, when they graduate and go off to London, he lives a very sort of silly young man life. Right? Yeah, he's yes. like, I've got money. Spending money, right? <laughs> Not being careful and thoughtful. Um, and we get this this sort of sense that like David has maybe in some ways lost touch of some of those sweeter, more grounded aspects of himself. Yeah. You see him kind of mimicking other people yes. to make people laugh and it ventures over towards the cruel a bit. Again, And he gets and- called out on it a few different ways and a few mm-hmm. different times. Yeah. Um, the other significant thing that happens when he's at the boarding school is that we meet Uriah Heep played by Ben Wishaw, who is one of those great actors who, mm-hmm normally plays much more likable characters and so it's kind of fun to see him play um a more villainous character and he's just this kind of wheedling um over over the top flatterer who's uh he's a climber he's he's got aspirations he wants to work for wickfield he wants to be partner and um as the movie continues and david is um living his sort of extravagant poorly budgeted life um Meanwhile, Uriah Heep, we gradually learn, has wheedled his way into a partnership with Mr. Whitfield and has um, been embezzling money right. from Trotwood. So she ends up losing all her money, losing her house. She and Mr. Dick come to England and they find themselves in the sad, poor apartment at the exact moment that David Copperfield is about to propose to his very, very flighty 
ditzy beloved dora entirely uh, wrong for him dora totally wrong for him dora great casting decision they actually have the same actress playing david copperfield's mother and dora and she you didn't catch it again no not at all <laughs> two weeks in a row that people are gonna be like really? <laughs> well and it's and it's again sort of a theatrical touch right like that idea that yeah. this is, would make a great stage play but um she's very wrong for david she's sweet she's um sort of this privileged daughter she's got a dog named jib that she pretends to talk for it's great she's um not that she's not very quick on the uptake right no she's I dim i don't want to say she's stupid but no but she's not super <laughs> att- and so like she comes to visit the new tiny poor apartment and <laughs> betsy trotwood is trying so hard to convey to her this is a bad idea you do not you do not want to marry David Copperfield. Um, and she's, she confesses her own bad marriage, which yeah. we learn it was abusive and regrettable. And it's a very big part of why she doesn't want a nephew. She's not, she doesn't like men. Mr. Right. Dick is only acceptable because he's so gentle and harmless. Um, and she says, like, Dora's looking around and she says, will the lady be bringing some tea? And Robert says, I will fetch some tea. The lady does not, does not exist. exist. <laughs> oh, so she hard. exists sometime. <laughs> no, she the lady does not exist. And she says, you are so very young. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> and so she's trying to kind of get her to understand it on her own. And it's and Dora's just like, I think we're only here because he's saving up to buy me a castle. Like, a it's castle. That. Is he... Is he though, dear? That's not what's happening here. And this is a pretty major change from the book, actually. In the book, he does marry Dora and she dies in pregnancy or complications of a miscarriage, I think. Well, that's not funny at all. Which is not funny at all. So the movie actually takes a great turn with this, I think. It's a very smart change. Um, Because in the meantime, as all of this has been happening, David has had the faithful love of Agnes Wickfield, who is too good for him in every iteration of the story. Um, and she and he work together to uncover, she figures it out and she gets David's help to, to reveal that Uriah Heep has been forging her father's signature um, and they get him forced out of the business, reclaim the money, et cetera. So as this is happening in this great sort of hectic scene full of people in Uriah Heep's office, um, they've revealed, Mr. Dick has, has revealed that the handwriting is wrong and Uriah Heep essentially has admitted that he's done this, um, he's committed this crime. And then Dora shows up and she says, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> yeah. And we cut to her to David in his little writing nook, and she's standing behind him and she's like, I wasn't there. I was out of town. And he's like, But he's I want you to it. be there. I'm writing you. I want you to be there. And we have this great meta moment yeah. where she says, I don't belong here. Write me out. Mm-hmm. And that's and how he they tries to find a way that it would make sense, but it doesn't. Doesn't like, even and he, to her. And I love the way that the the movie takes on this idea of David as writer and the story he wants to be telling, but also as audience, we're sort of let into the the adaptation process. Yeah, and it is this great little moment where she gets to leave the movie without dying of childbirth, which would totally yes. be unhandleable. No, right? like, there's no way. In, in this movie. Um, and in fact, like the hardest thing that the movie does, I think, is try to navigate some of the more tragic elements that it does keep, specifically with Steerforth, when we realize that Steerforth is depressed and suicidal. Um, but 
but they couldn't do the Dora thing. Like they just had to find a way. And I just think it's a, such an elegant solution. Yeah, it's really great. Um, and then in very quick effect, David and Agnes confess their love to each other. They marry and we skip back to the, the moment in time where the story begins um, and we see them all gathered back at Trotwood's house, which they've been able to return to. The macabres are there, and he and and there are there's some stuff that like they leave out some of Dickens' epilogue, which he's always like writing. Here's all the things that happened to the nine million characters in my book. Right, uh, it's okay. We, we don't closure, need to know all of it. Right? Yeah, exactly. So everyone's gathered together. David's got children, and we get this gorgeous moment where he's writing his story, and he and he sort of brings his child self into like manifests his child self so he can Mm -hmm. say it's gonna be okay yeah and it's gonna be an adventure and it's just so beautiful it's really lovely so much yeah i just adore it and like i said i was not expecting to but a major reason that i think this movie is as good as it is is that the casting is so well done yeah um dev patel is such a charming actor and he brings a lightness and a sort of child, a childlike sort of joy. He's got an energy about him. Yes. Like in his body, right? In yes. the way that he kind of moves and, moves through and obviously this and, can and be engages. an acting choice, but he just generally kind of has this like, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I hate the word bubbly. What do I want instead? Effervescence. I want... Effervescence. Thank you. That's the <laughs> word I want. Champagne. Um, but, but he, he does is. have this kind of effervescence about himself and the way that I mean, he moves and his face and I don't know. Um, he's just so pleasant. Yeah. Like I, he's most famous probably still for Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah. And I remember seeing that movie and thinking, I don't know who this kid is, but that movie is going to be a star kid because he's able to manage. <laughs> yes. And yeah. I'm actually surprised he's not a bigger star, but we'll get there maybe. Um, but he's got such a great presence and it really helps to make the more humorous, lighthearted stuff because David Copperfield accepts the ridiculousness around him yeah. without question. And you believe that he's sincere. He's not mocking. He's not disdaining. He just is like, oh, this is what okay. I have to roll this is with. how it is right now. Okay. <laughs> um, and he's so good at that. Tilda Swinton's perfect casting here. But it's fascinating because one of the things I kept noticing reading about this movie is that critics were using euphemisms left and right to avoid saying right out loud, David Copperfield's not white. There's a lot of people in this movie who aren't white. So you read a lot of reviews that are like, fresh take, modern adaptation. It's not modern, it's set. In the 19th century, the costumes, yeah. the sets, everything. You just mean they cast the language. You white. just mean that they cast non-white people in a book that you read as entirely white. Right. Um, and the casting is disinterested in things like how does a white actress uh, play his mother and a white actress plays his aunt on his father's side mm-hmm. and we have a non-white actor. It doesn't care. That's no. not interesting. It doesn't What's... care. It doesn't care how his friend is white, but his mother is black, black and we don't exactly. know whose father is. We don't see him. None it of doesn't... that is of interest to the movie. It's not addressed. It's all about the fact that these various actors have the right feeling for the characters they're playing mm-hmm. um, and the right dynamics between them. And it's just so, I mean, Benedict Wong is there. He's another one of those actors who just like to see on screen. Yeah. Um, and, and Agnes, I can't remember the actress who plays Agnes, but she's so wonderful. She's just got this lovely expression on at all times. 
Yeah, I she's think like, her, I am the calm center of this movie. She's the hardest part because she yeah. doesn't get much comedy. No. She doesn't get much drama. She's just this very straight. And yet you never doubt stable, that David but Copperfield she's would be in love with her. Mm-hmm. yeah she's never she's not boring somehow and her right. heart could be boring but she's, she's energetic got in this great way she's like i am put together i am navigating some chaos everything's going to be okay mm-hmm. but again i think hugh laurie might be the best thing in this movie yeah. for just sheer balancing that broad humor and that sort of sincere sweetness so we have the moment where he steals um macabre's concertina from the pawn shop yeah. and he runs out yelling I'm a criminal, I'm a criminal. <laughs> um but we also have the moment where he realizes that the conditions they're in are bad and that Mrs. Trotwood's sad because she's lost her house and he takes everything he has which is like four seashells and a crust of bread and he puts it in her lap and he says essentially thank you for taking me and I know how much worse yeah. my life would have been if you hadn't mm-hmm. and it's just this it's not it's not sentimental it's not melodramatic it's just mm-hmm. nice it's it so is. good and i um, my vote for the best thing in the movie is no shock um tilda swinton because there's yeah. this there's this moment where um mr dick says to um to david copperfield um she's a remarkable a remarkable woman she's so kind and you're like really because right? you've just seen her like beating off scaring <laughs> off donkeys and like it's like a ladle smacking this kid this woman and he's like, yes she's going to do violence to this to this boy and you're like kind okay not what i thought you were going to say but then you come to discover oh that's absolutely the, the case yes she's and just she's got this very protective kind of hardness about her um, but eventually you come to discover that really she is ultimately incredibly kind. Um, and I think that that is a a really remarkable kind of line to walk um, yeah. in her presentation. But of course, she's, you know, she's a genius. Of course, she's, she is. She did she's it right. so incredible. <laughs> she got it right. <laughs> it's almost one of the more conventional roles that you ever get to see her in, honestly, in some yeah. ways. It's yeah. sort of strange to be like, told us what in a, you know, aunt role. But um, she's so stately and she's so composed. And yet she comes into the scene and David Copperfield has um, fainted on her couch and she's freaked out because he's dirty. And she tries to revive him with salad dressing. And when he points that out, she's like, oh, that's it. (laughs) And then he asks if there's lettuce somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) This movie is so funny. Okay, so basically, I mean, this was essentially just an excuse for me to tell people to watch this movie. No, but so we wanted to talk about found families today. Yes. And, uh, you know, to be completely honest, when you suggested both of these texts for today, I was like, I'm going to trust you. I have no idea <laughs> um, if these are about that or not. Um, and this one, I think, really does that so well because there's not a conventional family in the mm-hmm. bunch. Yeah. Um, like there's no these... kind of full nuclear family anywhere. Um, even though, um, the, what are they? The, the macabers yeah they're the closest that we get i'm sorry they're the only intact family with both parents yeah but their children are like are there adopted children there there must be because they're still they're they're still three years old once david (laughs) is 20 years older so stream of infants yes there must be new children coming along (laughs) and you know they live in a debtor's prison for a while and they're homeless on the street and right 
Um, and then there are all sorts of other families who live in an upturned, an overturned boat. And who yes, which is such a cool set, right? Such a cool set. Oh, I who love only that. only have one parent who have no right. parents. These so, orphaned children of the sea, right? Right. And David's always looking for his place and like yes. who he really is going to be and where he can you know, be who he really is. And I mean, he's accepted in lots of different ways in lots of different places. It's not like right. he's he never is, accepted he is for loved. who he is. But, but. but at a certain point, I mean, at a, in a certain way, he allows the people around him to kind of define who he is because yeah. that's just kind of what he needs to do. Um, yeah, so I think a lovely choice. I'm really glad you liked it. I loved it. Loved it. I think the energy this movie gave me the first time I saw, I, I remember thinking... Okay, we're well, giving it a shot. I you, you loved the preview. Maybe it'll live up to it. And then the movie ended. And the other thing that I remember thinking is, holy crap, they made this in under two hours. I mean, just yeah. barely, but still. This book is like 700 pages I long. Know. I know. Tiny, well done. tiny print. Like, it's amazing how much of it they get in there. Um, because the pacing is just, it's quick, but you never feel rushed and everything fits and all the stories are told. It's just great. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting way to, I think, segue into the book that we read this month, because it's also sort of an interesting episisotic storytelling structure. Mm-hmm. Um, although Not it surprising covers a lot coming shorter the author that yes. she does this, right, a lot. So Erdrich, for many people, I think she's probably more familiar for her short stories. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people probably encountered her in like their introduction to lit class at some yeah. point in college. Um but They're, she did win a Pulitzer in 2021. Stories, yeah, stories from her book, Love Medicine, show up. Yes, in, they pop up a lot of anthologies. Mm-hmm. So they're, because it's a very episodic novel, but it is a mm-hmm. novel. I um, mean, there's one story called Fleur. Fleur, I can always say it wrong. F-L-E-U-R. E-U-R. That shows up in um, intro to lit classes and things a lot. Yeah. Um, and but she's, that's from the longer book, Love Medicine. She's... So. um. A very prolific writer. Mm-hmm. She's been writing for quite a while. Um, and uh, like I said, she she won the Pulitzer a couple of years ago for The Night Watchmen, which is based, I think, on her father or her mm. grandfather. He's um, she's, It's based on a family member. I think maybe yes. it's her grandfather. I don't remember which one, but yeah, it's based on a family member. Um, and this is interesting because um, the, the sentence, which is the movie we chose for, I mean, the book we chose for this month, um, Louise Erdrich actually appears in the book yeah. as a character in this not at all gimmicky move it's a really it's just she sort of appears from time to time um but in and the the bookstore in the book is her bookstore Mm -hmm. um and so it really is just i guess a reminder of just how grounded this book is in the moment that she was writing it Mm -hmm. um so the book is about a woman an ojibwe woman named tookie and it covers november 2019 to about the end of 2020 right so more or less a year um but it actually opens with this wacky story mm-hmm. that doesn't really anticipate what you're going to get yourself into tone wise. No. And then, but in other ways is critical to mm-hmm. the connections that the book makes over the course of the story. So Tookie starts off by telling us when she's in her mid thirties, she's still living like a teenager. She says, right. She's drinking too much. She's doing drugs and she gets wrapped up in this plot, basically unknowingly, Mm -hmm. Um, that ends up getting her tossed in jail and without going into too much depth here essentially she transports a body across state lines and then learns later that the body has drugs on it Uh so she gets a 60 year sentence it's got heroin too not just like not just like 
right hot like this is heavy drugs uh under this guy's armpits um and the man who comes to arrest her is a tribal cop um named pollux Mm -hmm. and he's very apologetic about it and then her lawyer who everyone's sort of like dismissive of because he doesn't seem particularly impressive right ends up getting her sentence shortened to 10 years right she gets out she marries pollux she gets a job at the bookstore and that's where the story sort of starts right um but it is critical that we have this this sort of prologue Mm -hmm. because in in jail while she was in jail she became a voracious reader right um, her former teacher Jackie sent her book after book after book and dictionaries, and she, um, she says she begins to read with murderous intent. Yeah, I love that phrase so much. Me and then too. Jackie also works at the bookstore. Has stopped being an English teacher and now works at the bookstore. There's also so there's Mickey also this line out, before connection. she gets to jail, where she tries to choke herself. Yes, eating on blank paper. Yes. I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. So it's so beautiful. Like she's like my, putting herself into a oh we might English nerd out a little bit on this. It's <laughs> such I mean, so this is the biggest English nerd book of all time, possibly, to the point where there's like a hundred and something titles just dropped over the course of the book. And then there's, this there's an appendix a list of just of the books, book, books, books after books. Read. Um, read all of these books that Tookie loves. Um, but so her name is Tookie, mm-hmm. which is already like what what's a tookie um yeah. and and at some point about the middle of the book we have this weird reflection where she realizes that she hasn't thought about her real name to the point where she's like do i know my name she doesn't know what it is she, she has forgotten her actual name she's just tookie and not um, like not tookie somebody anything just right? like she tookie. can't remember her surname she has right. nothing but tookie um and so that's like a weird off-putting thing but it is mm-hmm. very important to this the story overall that tookie's name is this sort of mystery um and her life is surprisingly good at this point when yeah. in 2019 when we roll around she's very very happily married married to pollux um and he's great he pollux is, great. is amazing and he's yeah. another indigenous um minnesotan um who had sort of a tragic backstory he lost his parents was raised by a grandmother um and after he arrested Tookie, he actually left the police and he came he actually invested well and so he has like some income and also he became like a furniture maker um but so they're happy they have a house they have a yard um they have a sort of adoptive daughter she's pollux's niece and his brother died and sort of she became his daughter but her relationship with tookie has historically been really fraught yes um and and when she shows back up on the scene that's important to their relationship too um, so when Hedda um Hedda enters the picture, their relationship is a major component of the story as well. Um, but the book is like we were saying, it's it's all about found family and the mm-hmm. family that Tookie makes for herself at the bookstore. And so again, so many characters in this book. I know we can't um, we can't cover them all. All the plot. But she does have um these two younger indigenous women, Asema and Penn Pinstaman, who are both um same as actually a phd student she's writing a dissertation yeah um there's this random german guy whose name i can't remember like there's just people everywhere um but the key person here is flora who was the most annoying and best customer that the store had and she dies on um all souls day 2019 and within a week she's haunting tookie at the bookstore right and tookie has to figure out how do i get rid of this ghost 
Um, why is she so attached to me? Um, and so, of course, the timing here is critical. Uh, and it's worth noting that that in interviews and such, Erdrich has said this book started as a as a ghost story. It was just mm-hmm. going to be the story about Toki and Flora. And then 2020 happened. And she right. uh, almost exactly halfway through the book. We enter the pandemic. And then, of course, Minneapolis, George Floyd's murder happens. Right. And then it's the summer of protests and um the themes of the book get caught up in mm-hmm. those two events. Um, but so Flora was a white woman who was obsessed with indigenous culture to the point that she tried to claim it herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, was at first, it seems like she was just an admirer and she wanted to become more knowledgeable. But by the time she died, she had, had got gained possession of this photograph of someone who she believed was an ancestor and it's indeterminate ethnicity. And so she claims this as her right um, indigenous great, great grandmother. Um, and, and this rightfully annoys the women who work in the bookstore that she's right. claiming this identity. Um, but they also, in many ways, she's a very giving and loving person. And she had, had taken in many foster teenagers and including one that she sort of unofficially adopted. Right. Um, and so when she dies, they're like, look, it sucked that she was appropriating our culture, but also she was in many ways, this person who had all of these admirable traits yeah, and if she's haunting us. Why? It's interesting because um, Tookie has a very specific impression of her as just like, so annoying. Um, yeah. But a thing that was a person who was such a kind of constant presence in her life that there's an absence now or there and- would be. There would be if she wasn't haunting her. Right. But then other <laughs> people who worked at the bookstore have different impressions of her. Yes. And her impressions of them kind of become clear because mm-hmm. her adopted daughter tells Tookie she you were her best friend. Right. And that's in the moment where Tookie is like, what now? I'm sorry, what? What? Um, and so it's it's the kind of haunting where at first it's mostly just annoyances. Mm-hmm. books falling off of shelves hearing sounds and gradually it becomes clear that other people are sensing flora too but she's definitely fixated on on tookie and the stakes start to rise and at yeah. one point tookie realizes she's trying to possess me like she mm-hmm. hears flora say let me in and then later she feels flora try to enter her body it right very harrowing description and i was like is she having a heart attack right now? right like about that her physical happening. experience of this ghost trying to open her back right and climb Pushing into her. her hands in by her heart and it's really oh, it's really rough. oh yeah. but the other thing that kind of becomes clear as this happens is that um tookie's own understanding of her cultural background and how to handle the spiritual experience of this ghost um is is sort of incomplete she was mm-hmm. raised by a mother who was an addict and was emotionally absent at the at best but was also frequently physically absent right and died when Tookie was still pretty young mm-hmm. and um and so Tookie wasn't raised with a lot of the same knowledge and and wisdom that Pollux for example got from his grandmother right she he doesn't have that sort of traditional um <clears throat> learning in her background Right. And Pollux has and the very... way that other people might because of the way they were raised or because they're getting a or, PhD and learning. Right, exactly. You see him as like doing research and learning mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and 
Pollux and she have different ideas about ghosts, which is a really interesting dynamic. But he essentially says, oh, you know, you're doing these things wrong. And then Jackie says, you know, don't wear red. That's there's a series of, of different pieces of wisdom that she, yeah. she she gathers over time, but she's not equipped with because of her own upbringing. Right. Um, and these all seem like very disparate threads. Right. But gradually stuff starts to come together. And we learned that there had been a woman who saved Tookie's mother's life, kept her sober when she was pregnant with Tookie. And that's who Tookie's named after. Mm-hmm. And we eventually learn that that was Flora. Right. And she is named after Flora. But on top of that, yeah, Flora had stolen from Asima this historical document, a book that was found with her stuff after she died. And Tookie becomes convinced that the book has killed her. Right. But there's a sentence in the book that Flora read, and that's why she died. And the book is a narrative of um, an indigenous woman who was stolen basically by a white family, um, mistreated by this white woman who ran a brothel, a sexually enslaved. Exactly. And that woman, we gradually learn, is the woman in the picture that Flora had that was actually Flora's ancestor, but she wasn't the indigenous woman that Flora hoped she was. She She was was the white, the white enslaver. Um, and that's where the name is. That that name is Lily Florabel something. And that turns out to be Tookie's name because she's mm-hmm. named after Flora, who's named after this horrible woman. And yeah. it's just this layers of relationships and knowledge and this the idea that a piece of information, a sentence could kill you. Mm-hmm. But Tookie is such a lover of books that that she struggles with this book, right? Like the existence yep. of this book, which threatens to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, she tries to burn it, which it is will not burn against her her entire belief system. Um, it won't burn. She ends up burying it. Asima figures out that she's buried it and uncovers it and, and sort of fills us in on a lot of this information later. But it's all sort of tied up in the idea that words, language, stories mm-hmm. have such incredible power yeah and they make such an important impact on how we understand ourselves in the world mm-hmm. um so that mystery that core mystery is kind of being unpacked throughout but the story is told in these little vignettes and almost diary entries when we get to covid mm-hmm. um and covid is very disruptive obviously um the the memory reading this book i read it first for a book club and a lot of people in the book club were like I was not, I don't need this book. Like, I don't need to read about the pandemic. I don't want to read about COVID. Just there. But there's, I think like the, the immediacy of those early days where we were like, how do you get it? How do you not get it? Mm-hmm. People sort of manufacturing little flimsy masks out of whatever they had at hand. Yeah. And then the, the death of George Floyd. So I mentioned earlier that this book name drops all of these other book titles because mm-hmm. Tookie is such a voracious reader. But the other thing the book does is that it names victims of police brutality yep. over and over and over again. And so we have this idea of the ghost story with Flora, but also the haunting Minneapolis being haunted in America, mm-hmm. the U.S. being haunted by right. all of these victims of systemic systematic racism and oppression. Um, and a little bit, those pieces are hard to fit together. And I think it's because she writes the story as vignettes that we're able to have the narrative that we do because i think it would be in a more conventional narrative 
it would feel a little bit overstuffed. I think so too. And I, you know, when, if you, if you kind of lay out the plot, the linear plot, because it is linear and right, it happens in chronological order and her books are not always linear. Right. Sometimes bounce back and forth, but this one is, it happens in chronological order. You get dates as like kind of chapter section names, um, a fair amount um, and things like that. If you were to lay it out, and say, okay, so this is about this haunting and about this book and why is Flora trying to haunt us and what's going on and what does this book mean and did the sentence kill her and blah, blah, blah. And then they kind of let that go for a while. And it's about um, George Floyd and the protests that happened. And then it's, and then in COVID and what happens to Pollux and all of that. Mm. And then we come back later, like almost at the end of the book. Oh yeah. Also there's this ghost still in the bookstore and the bookstore continues to come up because the bookstore continues to run during the pandemic. They get essential um, worker status. And so the bookstore is not open for customers but they are filling orders and answering the phone all the time um i love because she's a genius thank you louise erdrich how many ways you can nerd out on the idea of language in this yes in this book because everyone is calling on the phone so they're just talking the ghost is haunting her but only with sound right so they all they can do is hear her and oh it's, it's fun you can totally nerd out on it but anyway if you laid out the plot, you might see this stuff about the protests and the unrest and uh, the pandemic and COVID and Pollux in the hospital and all that is these like weird interruptions. But like they were weird. fucking. They were weird interruptions. Absolutely. And so it I think because she's so good at what she does, it's, you know, pulling pulling it all together and making sure that there are threads that keep you reminded of this thing that's still going on in the background it felt so true to me yeah, because it did just interrupt everybody's right. life. Everything just had to stop. Everything just changed. Everything just stopped. Um, and, you know, in different ways, but I really liked the way the what's happening with the virus. Is it dangerous? Is it no big deal? Do we wear this? Do we care about like, do we have to leave our groceries in the garage for two days until all right. the germs die off? Do we not? Do we wipe Took things down? Shopping trip to Target and trying to figure buying the six, like the six, um, what do you call them? Not lettuce cabbages because like nobody <laughs> cabbages, was buying right. cabbages. All she's the cabbages. Like, she gets home and she's just like a long shelf life. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the way that that mirrored the uh, how she presented what they were trying to figure out about the protests and yeah. like all like what's happening and where is it going on and we all you know all of america knew that this was happening and we were watching it but the fact that in this book it's happening in their town right obviously there's an immediacy um that's very different and the fact that the people um whose perspectives we are getting in this book are different from you know mine and yours sarah we're like mm -hmm. white women of you know comfortable means and privilege in a different way it doesn't affect us in the way that you see it affecting um tookie who is grappling with her the fact that she's married to a cop yes that she is thrilled to see people like the the police kind of like go, getting kicked back right and that she it's has so to go 
outside and roll around in the grass. She is so like filled with joy about this moment when people are pushing back and she can't do that in front of her husband because he's not going to understand what the hell is going on here. And she this is what makes it on her own. That opening section, which does feel disconnected at the, at first you're like, what is this weird story about a mm-hmm. body in the refrigerated truck? But that by the end of the book, she has to c- come face to face with the fact that she's never really processed yeah. the fact that she married the man who arrested her. Right. And that his choosing to leave law enforcement was part of his his affection for her, right? His okay. love for her. But it doesn't change that he zip, zip tied her hands together and put her right. in a cop car. Right. Um, but we also have that really great moment where he admits that they, they're watching Floyd's murder Mm-hmm. And his daughter says, look at these other cops. They're standing there just letting this happen. Like you would never have done that. And he's like, I would like to think I would never would not have done that. Yeah. I would like, I hope, I hope that I wouldn't have just stood by. Um, so his, his own sort of relationship with having been a tribal cop, not a Minneapolis city cop, but also that cops historically in Minneapolis were super abusive mm-hmm. to indigenous people there. Right. Um, and continue to be right. It's not historical only. Um, and, and sort of the relationship between like, how do they keep protesters safe if they're also doing violence to protesters? And like, right. yeah. why are we mad at protesters for, for the acts of violence that we're seeing on the news mm-hmm. when what they're trying to fight for is their safety and their right. lives. Yeah. Um, but that, that, the that ties in with Hedda, which we only sort of touched on. Hedda's young. She's like 20 early 20s mm-hmm. and when she shows up for christmas um Tookie's kind of dreading it because they have this very fraught relationship right um but she shows up with a newborn jarvis yeah the weirdest named newborn in history of books jarvis, um, yeah. and jarvis is named for his his great-grandfather and his father's side right and we get this gradual reveal because that's the way the book works we sort of put pieces together the jarvis's father is this character laurent laurent Laurent, um, who is somebody who has frequented the bookstore and has actually left his own book that is written in what he claims is a dead language that was revealed to him in dreams when he was a child, like four. Right. And he says, like, he claims that he's Matisse and he claims this indigenous ancestry and he claims the knowledge of this language. And it's like this, she calls it like chicken scratch, right? Like it's a scrawl. Um, and he at various points in time tells different people different versions of what the story is about and it's always about the person he's talking to yeah it's always like a come on but so we find out that he and Hedda had hooked up when she was on the set of a porn movie that she told Pollux about but said she had not made Midnight Cowgirl yeah and um and then when Tookie realizes this is like this horrifying piece of information that she has to keep from Pollux. Um, but so Jarvis is, is the relationship, the result of their relationship, but she's come back to Minneapolis to follow Laurent, who is also from Minneapolis. They came from New Mexico, I think is where they were when they made the movie somewhere in the Southwest, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They both come back to Minneapolis because that's where their families are. And, um, and she has this baby and it changes everything mm-hmm. with the family dynamic between her and Tookie in particular. And over the course of the book, Tookie is sort of coming into this role of, of mother and grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Hedda feels compelled to go to the protests, 
one of the ways that she conveys how important it is to her is that she she kind of talks Tookie into being okay with it by calling Tookie mom. Yeah. Right. And it's this incredible moment. But one of my favorite moments in the whole book is this conversation that Tookie has with Jackie. She's like, Jackie's got two grown kids and it seems like she didn't screw them up. They seem to like her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and she's thinking about Jarvis, but she's also thinking about Hedda, right? Right. Does it get easier? Like, this is hard. And Jackie's like, you know, it's it's like a constant changing thing being a parent. Yeah. Like you might have ages where like the things are in your skill set. Yeah, I loved that. I loved that idea. Some people so like, much. How good are you as a parent? Well, which parent? Right. At which age? At what age are we talking about? She's like, it never is not hard. It's always hard. Schoolers, it's always hard. It's just different hard, different times. And some people have the skill set to handle it. And some people will be better later. Yes. I I love it so much. I sat with that scene for like half an hour. I was like, (laughs) exactly. Yes. Because I felt like as a mom who was not great at babies, Mm -hmm. I am absolutely in my skill set now with an older kid who likes to read. Yeah. But like the, the hardest ages for me were before he could talk. Yeah. And other people love that. And I'm just like, how, (laughs) what do you, (laughs) how did you do it? I don't understand. Not my skill set. And when she talks about it in that way, it's so comforting to Tookie. But also as a mom reading that, I was just like, thank you for yeah. that. I didn't that- know that there were perspectives on this I hadn't heard before. <laughs> like, wait, <laughs> it, I hadn't heard before. And when I read, I was like, oh my God, that's so, that's exactly right. Yes. And Jackie is like a mother figure to Tookie in many ways. And it's not overly, like, it's not a heavy handed thing. It's just like, mm-hmm. Jackie was a teacher who saw Tookie right. and understood her, her, issues right her her intelligence saw her and the challenges she was facing and kept in touch with her um but it's also not like a let me be your mom kind yeah, of yeah she kind of like puts the bee in her bonnet about like yeah. don't you think you could know your name right it would be good if right. we thought this through What's a little your bit name? more and she's like i don't know she's like you don't great question do you she's like shouldn't that be on your standardized test like how Didn't do you, you find that out let's know maybe this but it's just that great moment where Tookie is seeking advice because she has the baby with her at the store and, mm-hmm. and is just sort of like trying to figure out how to be a grandmother when she'd never been an, a mother to an infant. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that moment, I just think is so gorgeous and so right. Like it just described an experience to me, like you said, in a way that I was just like, Oh, that's great. Thank you for yeah. that. Like, I know. Um, and then the relationship between Hedda and, um, Tookie sort of resting on the two of them understanding like they're both mothers now like they can see each other differently than they used to be able to mm-hmm. it's just really really great but yeah there's so much in this book yeah I, I feel like I you know and so many little like snapshotty moments that do so much work but when Pollux goes into the hospital with COVID and you have this like he's like a teddy bear character right like he's mm-hmm. so comforting he loves Tookie so much their humor and their gentleness with each other is such a beautiful relationship. And when you think that you could lose Pollux, that Tookie could lose Pollux, and what would that mean? Like, what would Tookie's life look like? Yeah. But at the same time, she can't not sit with the other aspects of their relationship. She yeah, has she's to still angry. It. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. But she's sleeping in the car at the hospital, even though he tells her not to. And we know like he doesn't want to be put on a ventilator. And these are words that reading them, even in 2023, you're just like, holy shit, a ventilator. Like, that's it. That's at the end. Like if he's in the hospital, is he ever coming out? Yeah. Um, it's just a lot of emotional stuff. But the thing, and I, I read a lot of reviews of the book and people seem really divided on this. I'd love to know what you think. Because a lot of people are like, thank God the tone here manages to stay somehow above depressing, right? Tookie's funny mm-hmm. and she's um, frank. She's a great narrator. Mm-hmm. And other people are like, there's a major disconnect between the tone of the book and the topic of the book. And they think it's too light or it's too funny or something. Like it's not taking things seriously enough. I disagree. Um, I think, I mean, I think, <laughs> I don't know. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Yeah. Um, I think the book is really really well done and it like I said at first when I started reading the sections on like protest and COVID and stuff I'm like but where's what about the ghost we left the yeah ghost. what happened to Flora and the more I kind of read through it and the more I thought about it you know it feels a little bit messy it feels a little bit incomplete but in a way that feels totally true to the story that's being told to me um and so i mean i don't think she is funny in moments when like it's not called for right Uh, it's i mean i i don't know i just i mean i think tookie's worldview is consistent and i think that's where the tone Mm -hmm. point comes up for people but tookie's got a sort of off-kilter um sort of i survived a lot of shit i'm here kind yeah, of she takes, she takes the things seriously that need to be taken seriously and she's dealing with her own shit and she's certainly very upset and yeah. concerned and worried about the stuff that's going on at the bookstore and she is you know she gets mad at moment i don't know i mean maybe i'm identifying with Tookie or something she's <laughs> she's a character that makes a lot of sense to me she does um, i mean i don't yeah. have the same experiences as, as she does at all but um there's something about her character that seems very relatable to me in some way I feel um, like she's just such a really fully developed personality. Yeah, yeah. And and actually the few things I don't really love about the books are the moments when we're occasionally taken out of her narrative. Yeah. Everyone's a while third you get person vignettes. perspective. Yeah. And I'm uh-huh. like, eh, okay. I mean, yes, thank you for the information, but I miss Tookie. Let's get her back here. Like, yeah. Um, she's just so yeah, the the disconnect and the because I read one review that described the tone as almost saccharine. And really? use the word fructose to describe it. And I was like, what? I don't get that vibe even at all. Um, yeah. The fact that you get these fun conversations between coworkers that are often humorous. That's how a lot of us deal with uncertainty and anxiety. Yeah. Um, the, the, the characters are navigating really hard things, but they're doing it like humans. I wonder like, the relationship between Tookie and Pollux is positive almost exclusively. Yeah. I wonder if that bothered people. If that feels I wonder it's true. Like it's such something. a healthy marriage and a relationship in a book. Yeah. Um, because I, because I, again, I'm thinking back to when my book club read this and that was one thing that a lot of people commented on is how much they loved reading about Tookie and Pollux. Yeah. Because you don't get to see these happy marriages. It's nice to have a break from like, secretly everybody is doing horrible things to one another but without it and i don't think it feels saccharine at all like they're not 
um, you can see their affection for one another. And we know that they have a healthy sex life, although that is not dwelt upon at all. Um, I love when Hedda is like, that, that's enough. Right. We Sometimes we hold right hands there. to fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, you, you hold hands. That's all. <laughs> um, so yes, there are funny moments. Strong but... friendship. <laughs> but yeah, no, I just, I was really fascinated by that because I thought the tone of the book seemed to me very... Um, very much part of why the story works as well as it does mm -hmm. is because it's all told through Tookie. Um, there's one character we haven't talked about. And again, I think the fa found family question kind of comes up with this um, and that's dissatisfaction. Oh yeah. Who is this older black man retired comes to the bookstore and seems to have read everything. almost everything yeah. and gets insulted when she offers some suggestions. So he's like, get out of here with that. that six times, you know, um, and so his real name isn't re isn't revealed till later. She learns it's Roland, but she calls him dissatisfaction in her head. And she finds out that he calls her in his head alphabet soup because yeah. of the, the sort of litany of titles that she'll throw at him. Um, and they have this great rapport and, and, and respect for each other because mm -hmm. of their shared love of books. And there's this great moment where she meets him at his house. She's bringing him yeah. books at his house and she meets his dog, Gary, who's a yeah, girl dog. Who's a girl. Um, and Gary is a distinctive dog. She's got a notch in her ear. Mm -hmm. And later in the book, Gary comes to the bookstore or she sees Gary in the street. Mm -hmm. and Which she is not, and is he doesn't like, live close to the bookstore. No. And she's like, something's wrong. I have to go check on dissatisfaction. Um, and she comes to his house and meets his daughter who says, oh, he's in the hospital uh, with a heart thing, but he's okay. And Tookie thinks that there's this... Um, there's this idea that sometimes a, an animal can love a person so much that when death arrives, the animal will step in and take the hit. Mm -hmm. And she thinks, because she says, oh, I saw Gary. And the daughter's like, no, Gary died the day that we took dad to the hospital. Yeah. And she thinks Gary took the hit for dissatisfaction. And I love that we have on top of sort of like the, the dynamics between the humans, this great moment with the dog that's so... I'm like, yes, I agree. I believe that. Like Gary took that. Yeah. Gary stepped up and, yeah. and wanted Tookie to know. She was worried about about dissatisfaction. She needed mm -hmm. Tookie to know. And it's not like Lassie, you know, Timmy's in the well. Like it's like a real true thing that everyone feels. I just, I think that little moment is great. And dissatisfaction is an excuse to add like 17 more titles. Yes. Every time he shows <laughs> yes. up on screen. But um but he's just, you know, he wants a book that's going to make him happy. And they have this idea that there are these short, perfect books. And I'm just like, this is such a nerdy text. This, this is novel. Yeah. I love it so much. But yeah, it's wonderful. Um, but everyone in the book is tied together by stories and tied together mm -hmm. by books and the love of stories and the love of storytelling. Um, and then the idea that the sentence is both like her jail sentence, but it's also the sentence that kills Flora. And it's it also the Flora. sentence that sets you free. And what else is it? We are sentenced to what? Relive generational trauma. trauma we are yeah. there's so much, right? It's um, so, so many it's ways so that that idea is. And I just, I loved, I loved how the story was told. Again, like, I feel like describing it doesn't allow you to see how the pieces fit together because it's just so many pieces. Mm -hmm. But she's, you know, there's a reason she's known for being one of the best writers that we have this and, is just an incredible book and if you've never read anything by her before listeners um one of the things that she does a lot is she has characters that recur across different books 
um, and like families and storylines will be mentioned and brought up again and things like that. So there are these, you know, it's kind of a world that she's built um, and not, they don't all do that in the same kinds of ways. But um, for that reason, I think it's, it's extra fun and interesting that she herself, the author appears in this book. Yeah. Um, because of course she's the connecting thread between she's all the of universe. them. Yes. Right? Um, and so she finally gets to appear on the page um, in so this great. One, which is nice. Yep. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think this this is a book that I'm sure that her editor was like, what is going on here? Like halfway <laughs> through your book, you've decided to do what now? Um, I wonder I wonder if the editor does do that or is just like, uh, OK, uh, you do what right, you do. Yes, yeah. I, I trust sure that you will get this worked out. out. Um, but I, I, I do think like the idea of the pandemic book, the idea of the books that are capturing the George Floyd murder and protests, um, they aren't that far removed from us in time. No. And we would typically, the way cycles of like trauma events Mm -hmm. and the texts that come out of them work is usually takes at least 10 years or so before we give them a little breathing room. We wait until we feel like we can process them. So it is a little strange to read them immediately. It feels Mm -hmm. like immediately, but this one was different. Like most of the trauma events that happen are war or terrorist attack or something. And in this particular case, everybody was just stuck at home. So no big surprise that that there are authors who are writing about it, right? They literally just had the time to do it. Right. true. Get around and ruminate. And it's something we were trying to process as we were living it. Mm Mm-hmm um because time works so differently there's this great moment where she's numbering the entries by dates and we get to like may 34th right i read that and i was like hold on a minute and then i went back and i was like oh that one said may 32nd yes, i didn't even notice yes, that one I'm right but that's how time worked like what month are we in i have no what idea what day is it i don't know everything blended together and stretched out uh-huh. um, and the anxiety around it was very palpable in the book but also like the sort of there's that great there's that moment where she and Pollux she's kind of like I could live like this like forever like yes. we could go Which, get our Chinese food and sit I, in the house. she's like do I have to go back to work yeah. I want to stay home I liked this like, this, this is, is the world I was like this is the yeah, world I was waiting I was, for I'm and I didn't to just know sit it. in my house and read books this is it yes. this is the thing which is exactly how I felt so many people were like can it in I am tired of lockdown and I'm like lockdown is my jam <laughs> was very and and the post lockdown like oh have a social life again thing i was like oh but books are great though must we Um, now that i can read them again now that we've gotten over the the (laughs) trauma of not being able to read which was that very specific pandemic experience yeah lots of netflix for a while comfort level and her joy at having like just this life of just books and pollux Mm -hmm. it was great um but yeah, I love these two texts. Maybe don't immediately, I guess, speak to each other on their most obvious mm-hmm. surface levels. But I think in both, we are we. It's partly I think that's why they're both so crowded. Is mm-hmm. that we have mm-hmm. this idea that yes, family is a complicated thing, and maybe we don't get great parents or have parents at all, right? And maybe we're orphaned in various ways. Maybe mm-hmm. um, the people who came before us had challenges and and obstacles but also wisdom that we can only kind of access now in our own lives but the the putting together a family finding the people who understand you and love you 
Um, and both of them do that through story, right? Like mm-hmm. both of them are about yep. readers I mean, and, there are, and people who, inqu- who really engage the world as texts. Yeah, there are a lot of overlaps, really. I mean, yeah. the central protagonists for both are people whose childhoods were filled with trauma and abandonment and being shuffled around and not really knowing who they were supposed to be or where they were supposed to be and trying to fit in in these ways that were not working and they don't know what their name is and right oh my god yeah that's even better I didn't even make (laughs) that (laughs) and they finally by the end kind of come to a place where they feel comfortable and they know who they are so like yeah I mean come on we can tie them together you know what I'm really glad I didn't go with my other choice for the movie for this episode which I don't know if you remember was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Although to be fair, I think we could make some of the same claims there. Of course. Um, But I was like, Ooh, maybe we should go in that direction because it's also great. Uh, But no, these two ended up being such a good pairing. I'm really happy with the, it's a lot like how it worked out with men and and head full of ghosts. I feel like in some ways we're almost doing this like subconsciously because some part of our teacher brain is still active. Oh yeah. In the background. So I think this is a good moment to talk about December then. Yes, let's do that. Okay. So moving on to our next month and our next theme. Yes, for December, we are going to be talking about movies about holidays in a general way. So um, Sarah and I both celebrate Christmas. So there will be Christmas movies here. There, you know, We've got New Year's Eve happens in, in uh, December as well. So we're going to be talking about holiday movies in a general kind of way. Um, and our first pair of movies is, Sarah, you have the dates on this written down, right? I do, yes. Um, so we will be for our first week, I think that's December 5th fifth um watching two movies that are controversially categorized as christmas movies right um die hard from 1988 and kiss kiss bang bang from 2005 yeah so Um, we will be discussing are these christmas movies or not and i think that's a great way to start the month yes i do too i do too. what makes a christmas movie uh and then you'll get treated later on in the month of december to some of our specific personal favorites Mm -hmm. yeah um but we're also going to be reading for the month of december uh kate milford's novel the green glass house right i actually don't know what year that came out i do not remember i want to say early 2000s late 90s something like that but i could 2014 oh oh okay yeah so um and i it's part of a series but we're just going to be reading the first one right so if you like it there will be more for you to follow up on later and it's not super long and it's a much easier read than the sentence so if the sentence seemed um too intimidating um (laughs) for this moment in your life um green glass house should be one that would fit into just about anybody's busy december schedule yes if you've got other things if you're wrapping presents or making cookies or lighting candles and have a lot less time on your hands than usual yep this one will be easier to get this will be a better yeah um so well i'm happy with our family talk i think we had some really yeah uh, some fun chats and some fun movies this month yeah um and we'll be moving into like eggnog and hot chocolate territory for the next few episodes so excellent yeah thank you for picking these uh this book and movie for today i'm so happy that you liked them absolutely Lovely to talk to you as always. Yes, as always. Talk to you next week. Okay, bye.